Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. So we have had a big week, a terror attack at the airport in Istanbul. The Brexit fallout continues in Britain, and it's even found its way into every corner of our politics on this side of the pond. We'll have listener mail and can't let it go when we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So, you guys, I was on vacation for like a week all over California. It was so good. Thank you. Give me that slow clap. Aww. It felt so That's great. like kind of a, some contempt in that yeah. clap as well. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Thank Make you. Happy. So what did I miss? to have you back. You didn't miss anything. There was no news. Uh, so no news. move on. Love yeah, it. Okay. Definitely. Great show. No great show. <laughs> See you next week, guys. All right. Let's talk about the big news of this week, a bombing at the airport in Istanbul. It's worth noting that something like this in Turkey, closer to the Middle East, it doesn't get the same kind of attention in our politics that it would have had had it happened in London or Paris or here, Right. That's right. I mean, just look at look at the way that everybody reacted to uh, the bombings of the airport in Belgium, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a similar situation. And I think it just kind of dominated the news in a way that, that the Turkey attacks did not. I mean, I think th- these were clearly notable. It's also worth saying a lot of stuff happened this week. But you're right. It feels like if it happens in Western Europe, it's something that just kind of captures everybody's imagination here and drives our politics here and drives our news cycle here. I think there's also been a little bit of a dulling of the senses. Because um, some regions just are, have been more prone to this, it seems. Well, and Turkey neighbors Syria. It's yeah. been having a lot of issues with terrorism lately, though this attack was very significant and, and happened in this airport that many of us have spent time in. It's a, an airport that is a really huge, awesome airport that has become quite a hub. We've um, been there, you and I, Tamara. Yeah, indeed. We spent like two whole days there. Yeah, yeah. And you guys were covering the Olympics. Yeah. Okay, so of course, the other big story of the week continues to be Brexit. I like saying that word. I, that's probably Brexit. why it passed. It's such a great word. <laughs> so basically, the dust is settling and everyone is looking around Europe being like, OK, what is happening? But where does this stand? Who can fill us in? Well, the latest update is that Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, who was like the driving force behind the Leave campaign, uh, everybody viewed him as the likely next prime minister now that David Cameron said yeah. he was leaving. He announced uh, earlier today, or earlier Thursday, that he's dropping out of the race. He's not going to stand for conservative leader. So that throws the race wide open. A, a lot of people thought it was Boris Johnson's to lose. And, and just kind of the maneuverings that happened. I, I read a funny quote in one of the articles about this, uh, that in terms of alliances forming and breaking and people turning on people they were allied with, uh, one member of parliament said that what's been going on in Britain the last week makes House of Cards seem like Teletubbies. That was the quote, <laughs> which, which I liked. Well, I mean, like hearing the Boris Johnson news today, it was like, this guy had like pulled a big psych. Well, like, I, he was the one but, behind the but thing. But part right? of it though is because he didn't have the political support. Huh. I mean, from his own party. I mean, he would have wanted to be prime minister, it seems, but it didn't seem that his party would actually get behind him, which I think he was surprised by. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that, that I think is clear, and John Oliver actually pointed this out better than anything else I've seen, which which is you know often the case on a lot of things, was that whoever is going to be the next prime minister is just going to have the worst job in yeah. the world because. Once they start the process, it's a two-year window for them to leave the EU. They basically have to rewrite every single treaty that they have and and, and deal with a whole new set of rules. And it's clear that the EU is uh, not going to be interested in cutting Great Britain a deal because they don't want other countries to think that they can leave too. I'm still wondering, as someone over here, um, how will this affect America and my 401k? Well, your 401k (laughs) is... um, Doing much better today than it was doing a few days ago. Okay, that's good to know. The initial good thing shock, you didn't retire a week ago. 
Yeah, I hope you didn't sell. The initial shock is wearing off. Things are starting to stabilize and recover a little bit. We're going to be in this long period of uncertainty uh, in Europe. And that's essentially the case that President Obama was making in an interview that he did this week with Steve Inskeep. Speaking of that, yeah. So we should mention this week, Steve Inskeep interviewed President Obama on Morning Edition. Ask him about the Brexit and what fueled that vote there and whether it's similar to what's happening here in our politics. We have a cut of that tape. Overall, uh, I think that the differences are greater than the similarities. But what is absolutely true is that the, the ability to tap into a, uh, a fear that people may have about losing control uh, and... Uh, to offer some sort of vague, nostalgic feelings about how, uh, you know, we'll make Britain great again or we'll make America great again. And the subtext for that is somehow that uh, a bunch of foreigners and uh, funny-looking people are coming in here and changing the basic character of the nation. Uh, I think uh, that some of that is, uh, is out there. But what's amazing about what Obama told Stevens Keep was that people shouldn't, you know, that there's been a lot of hysteria following the Brexit vote. There's been a little bit of hysteria post-Brexit vote, as if somehow NATO's gone and the transatlantic alliance is dissolving. That's kind of an amazing statement uh, coming from President Obama, given that he had warned so strongly against uh, the, the, he went over there and said, he went do over it. there and said that yeah. Britain should not leave the EU. It's, it kind of reminded me of that Republican debate where they were all railing against Donald Trump and saying, and they were like, you know, "Oh, he's cool." Yeah, like how he's so dangerous, he's terrible. Don't vote for him. And they're like, "So would you support the nominee?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I guess we Where's would." My hand? Yeah, okay, it's fine. But yeah, I mean, I think that what happened with with Brexit though, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not it's filtered into our politics here. Yeah, and I think that can take us to this week. Uh, I uh, I did a little road trip to Western. Pennsylvania to uh, Manesson, uh, Pennsylvania, outside Pittsburgh, where Donald Trump gave a speech. We can talk about the setting of that speech in a little bit. I have lots of thoughts about sitting there. But uh, what, what was really interesting to me is that this is probably the clearest way that Donald Trump has expressed his like very isolationist viewpoint, uh, very uh, kind of nationalist viewpoint on trade. Uh, yet, It's become a big part of his campaign. But Trump is really clearly trying to draft off of Brexit. He Mm -hmm. gave the speech saying, our friends in Britain did this. We need to do the exact same thing. I want you to imagine how much better our future can be if we declare independence from the elites who led us from one financial and foreign policy disaster to another. Our friends in Britain recently voted to take back control of their economy, politics, and borders. This entire speech was remarkable because, I mean, he's been doing this the whole campaign, but this was an organized, teleprompter-delivered speech about it, where where Trump basically railed against the last 30-plus years of American foreign policy that both parties agree with. So my question, when he campaigns on Brexit, isn't the experience of the U.K. different than ours? Like, the U.K. is in the EU. We don't have that. We have some trade agreements that he might think are similar, but isn't the situation itself just different? You mean it'd be like, it'd be like Greg Abbott in Texas standing up and saying we should do a Texit or something? Because they're sort of within this broader union of the United States. Texit happened in 1861 and it didn't work out. Yeah, and they're, they're not looking to do that. But is it really simplistic to draw those 
kind of comparisons? Of course it's simplistic. It's not, it's of course not the same thing. The United States is a huge economy. And while Britain is important, splitting off from the EU is a completely different unraveling than the US, which is doesn't have to worry about all of those entanglements. But the emotion is yes. similar. Yeah. And, and this I, populist uprising kind yes, of. Yes. And I don't think that we should underestimate that emotion, that feeling that a lot of people in America have that the economy isn't working for them and the feeling that a lot of people in Britain had that the economy isn't working for them. And the country is changing visibly in ways that they feel that they can't control. Right. And that's what Trump was doing in this speech. And it's what he's been doing for months on the campaign trail, kind of riding this populist feeling of we're tired of taking a backseat to other countries. We're tired of our jobs going overseas. We're tired of not having control of ourselves and tying that into the proposals that he wants to put forward. And that's first and foremost, telling the Trans-Pacific Partnership to take a hike. That's become such a big battleground in the Democratic primary before. And and now Trump's kind of taking the Bernie Sanders position of this uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. President Obama wants it. Most Republicans want it, but I think it's a terrible idea. He also wants to totally rewrite NAFTA and also aggressively... Uh, almost pick fights with other countries when it comes to trade deals, especially China. Huh. Did he get into any specifics at all about how he would do that? Well, yeah. he, wa- yeah. he wants to cut better deals, which yeah. is just an interesting kind of uh, way to talk about it. Because in a way, his position is not that dissimilar from Hillary Clinton's. I mean, Hillary Clinton wants to create a better deal out of TPP. It's just that that there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not Hillary Clinton well, is, she's been is on more both sides of TPP. Yeah. And she's se- she seems to lean more toward the free trade side of things than uh, being protectionist and had really adopted her position after calling TPP the gold standard because she was being pushed by Bernie Sanders in the in the primary. And one fascinating thing about what was happening during this Trump speech, it, it was almost like the regular partisan alliances were completely scrambled because you had the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has Endorsed Republicans for a long time. It, well, it has it has definitely been on Team Red more than been on Team Blue. Was basically live tweeting in the middle of Donald Trump's speech, saying what he's proposing would kill 3.5 huh. million jobs. What he's proposing, it was, they they had, were, it's like they had an entire oppo file ready to go on Donald Trump while his speech was going on. This is an organization that has spent 134 million dollars since the 2008 campaign. Almost exclusively, if not exclusively, on Republicans Republicans and trying to help them win. They're one of the biggest uh, funders of conservative causes and in elections. And for them to be on the sidelines this year is not something that Republican leaders are happy about. So before we leave this topic, Scott, describe the scene. It was pretty unique, (laughs) if that's the word to use. Yes, this was watching um, it on television is the first thing anybody saw. And why don't you say what you saw on television first, and I can tell you how true to life it was. Well, everyone, first of all, was asking, what is that first? And then I, you started, I was on vacation. What was well, it? Well, you started to realize that there were a bunch of crushed aluminum cans compacted in piles behind him with like, I don't know, was it like phone cords? Was it that a recycling were, It was a recycling, it was a recycling facility. It, but we were inside this uh, this aluminum processing plant. So it's this- Sounds dangerous. It's this giant warehouse with a metal roof and no circulation. And the oh, first gosh. thing you see when you walk in- it's just piles of trash heap metal twisted and you're just like what is going on here so you had to like weave your way through these (laughs) these mazes and piles of twisted scrap metal and crushed cans (laughs) to get to where the Donald Trump speech was 
And because this is an active plant, there was dust everywhere. Oh. I was covered in the entire oh warehouse. But there was also never like any acknowledgement of the giant wall of trash behind him, <laughs> right. which is like if you know something is so obvious that's gonna that's behind you. If you, you see know, something, you gotta... say something. And, and that's the thing that you know. I think uh, the average person probably doesn't see much of a difference. But just the Trump campaign versus a traditional campaign. Right. Like a traditional campaign, they'd give us a little one sheet and say, "We're here at Illumicore. It creates this many jobs. Here's and what it does, it, so you can put that in your story." And it's kind of also one of those forehead slap moments because it's a message that would put Hillary Clinton on her back heels because he's talking about trade in a way that that you know is problematic for Democrats to try to win a place like Ohio, try to win in a place like Pennsylvania, and all people were talking about was the giant background of trash. Speaking of Trump's messaging this week, that was another speech from a teleprompter, uh, but it was a contrast to some other things he said this week, right, Tim? There has been this big question about whether Donald Trump can make the pivot to be a general election candidate. And for the last week and a half or so, he has been doing a pretty good job of doing these teleprompter speeches, being very much on message, sticking to it. Mostly. But then immediately after this trade speech where he used a teleprompter, he went and he did a more traditional Donald Trump rally in Ohio. Stream of consciousness. And at that rally, he was feeling the crowd and he described trade deals in a way that is very different from the way he did it with a teleprompter. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is another disaster done and pushed by special interests who want to rape our country, just a continuing oh rape of our oh, country. That's again. what it is, too. It's a harsh word. It's a rape of our country. Third time. Oh, third time. This is done by wealthy people. What's the deal with this? Which version of Trump sticks? I think both of them probably stick. Uh, you know, the people who are looking for some reason to support Donald Trump but that are nervous about it, they can look at teleprompter Trump and get, take heart a little bit. And then... There are people, many people, who appreciate the Donald Trump who tells it like it is. In that same speech in Ohio, the terrorist attack had happened in Turkey, and, and Donald Trump reacted in this way. So we can't do waterboarding, but they can do chopping off heads, drowning people in steel cages. They can do whatever they want. They probably think we're weak, we're stupid, we don't know what we're doing, we have no leadership. You know... You have to fight fire with fire. We have people out there. Well, but you see how that resonates. And frankly, the thing that's difficult about the two Trumps is this idea that, you know, he suddenly put him on a teleprompter and that's going to win him the election. Because the way he was able to get through that primary was by making these emotional appeals to the Republican base. But that's base. a different electorate. Right. But and that he clearly but, hates but, the teleprompter version of and himself. And you can't, right. And you can't alienate those people and suddenly take all the energy out of your candidacy. I mean, I saw somebody say if Republicans wanted a boring candidate who could read in a boring way off a teleprompter, they should have nominated Jeb Bush. Who's that? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, think, I think I think I disagree with Tam actually on on which side wins out. I think um, I think if I sat here and yelled at you, Sam, which and you then, do some days, which I do some days, and then twenty minutes later, like, hey, I'm sorry, how's it going? I mean, which I, one sticks? The, which the one sticks? One. Yeah, and I think which one sticks in news coverage? Which one sticks in social media chatter? Which one sticks in fuel for commercials from Hillary Clinton's campaign? I think it's Trump number two of, of earlier this week. I think it's off-the-cuff remarks that you don't hear from many politicians. I think the real test is which Trump shows up at those debates this fall. Anyways, yeah, we're moving on. 
All righty, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about Elizabeth Warren's big appearance with Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail this week. And we'll also talk with Domenico about 2016 demographics. All right. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey guys, before we get back to the show, if you're looking for a new podcast, check out Hidden Brain, the NPR podcast about social science you can apply to your everyday life. Hear about how being busy affects your motivation, the science of deception, or the downsides of getting personal online. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantham at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. So Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton hit the campaign trail together in Ohio this week. It was anticipated. It comes after Warren's endorsement of Clinton. But uh, what did this mean, Tam? It was a big deal for a couple of reasons. One, Elizabeth Warren was late to endorse Clinton, and there was some question about how full-throated her support would be. Well, this proved that she is all in for Hillary Clinton. The other question was, will they have chemistry? I saw chemistry. I also felt like having Warren there made Clinton seem more relaxed. She was a little looser. They were, like, getting along on the stage quite well. And they were having a lot of fun, it seems, attacking Donald Trump. So we have a clip from that speech, which pivoted off comments that Trump made when he was in Scotland last week at his golf course. Uh, Trump said there that maybe the British pound losing value wasn't so bad because more people might visit his golf course, which he was there to promote. Donald Trump cheered on Britain's current crisis, which has sucked billions of dollars out of your retirement accounts because he said, hey, it might bring more rich people to his new golf course. He cheered on the 2008 housing crash because he could scoop up more real estate on the cheap. And he cheered on students desperate enough to sign up for his fake university so he could bleed them dry and turn a profit for himself. What kind of a man does that? What kind of a man roots for people to lose their jobs, to lose their homes, to lose their life savings? I'll tell you what kind of a man. A small, insecure money grubber who fights for no one but himself. Elizabeth Warren is proving herself to be probably the most energetic Democratic attack dog against Donald Trump. She's crappy, yeah. She is willing to say things that are tougher than what Hillary Clinton says. And, and, you know, that is a role that a vice president can sometimes have. It is also... uh, you know, it is something that she seems to be relishing. It's also good to have surrogates who won't be your vice president who can do that. Yeah, like, does this mean, so <laughs> does this appearance this week mean that Warren's at the top of this list for VP? I don't think so, personally. No, not, no, no, not necessarily. Because I think that whenever Warren is there, she is more exciting and more galvanizing and gets more and attention more, than and Hillary more, Clinton. And potentially uh, can outshine her yeah. and can potentially make more news, oh, which yeah. is part of the strategy of the Clinton campaign to not make news yeah. so mm-hmm. that Donald Trump can 
can make all the news and they can sort of float below all of that. And also having two women on the ticket might hurt with some male voters. Yeah, I mean, look, the fact of the matter is with when it comes to vice presidents, the the number one rule is do no harm. And, you know, she's a little bit of a risk because of that, because she's willing and to— And Clinton s- has been so risk-averse her entire career. And risk-averse is good in a vice presidential pick, which is why someone like Tim Kaine is more likely to be the nominee because he balances the ticket. He's, you know, he's been on a debate stage. Say who he is. Tim Kaine is the senator from Virginia and has been vetted for this position before Barack Obama considered him in 2008. Hillary Clinton had this line in her speech following Elizabeth Warren's speech where she said, and I just love how Elizabeth Warren. I do just love to see how she gets under Donald Trump's thin skin. (laughs) Hillary Clinton may have had a point there because within moments of the speech ending, Donald Trump was on the phone with a correspondent from NBC News attacking Elizabeth Warren, calling her Pocahontas. All right. So the other thing that happened this week was this new Benghazi report. I feel like we've heard about Benghazi reports before. I think there have been seven of them. For a long time. Was this one this week different or nothing new? This was a report uh, from the House Select Committee on Benghazi. This was a committee that was put together that was supposed to, you know, bring together all of the other investigations, and there have been many, and be the big ultimate one. It also has, from the very beginning, been seen as sort of a partisan witch hunt. Um, House Republicans are the ones who had really pushed for this. And Was this the committee she testified in front of? Yeah. Yes. Okay. This uh-huh. is the committee she testified in front of back last fall. She testified for 11 hours. This committee ultimately comes out with this report that doesn't add any new Political elements? Yeah, well, yeah. It, it well, doesn't. The, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It didn't add any new incriminating anything against Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of pieces of news of this that came out that weren't necessarily political, but had to do with the military. There was this report of planes. They had uh, they noted in there that there were planes that sat on the runways, uh, runways in Spain, despite clear orders from the president and the secretary of defense. We learned that the Libyan military intelligence group, which was an arm of Gaddafi, actually were the only ones beating back uh, some of the attackers after the American security forces had abandoned the outpost. So you had some of that, but not a lot that changes the narrative when it comes to Hillary Clinton. How did her camp respond to this? They said, wow, this is $7 million and nothing new. Let's move on. But it did make its way into an ad for Trump, which was done by, of all groups, the NRA this week. Yep. The National Rifle Association. Yeah. Hillary is president. This kind of sounds like the Michael Bay No, thanks. I served in Benghazi. My friends didn't make it. They did their part. Do yours. That's serious. The NRA Political Victory Fund is responsible for the content of this advertising. And it's interesting, the NRA, because it doesn't have to do with guns. I mean, this has to do with Benghazi. Um, But, you know, we should note, though, that if the Benghazi committee had never taken place, we would have never known about Hillary Clinton's private email server because that's what wound up coming out of the early days of this investigation. So when you talk about something new coming out of it, maybe not now, but for a year and a half, certainly Hillary Clinton has been struggling to defend that uh, email server where we keep getting releases of emails that we hadn't seen before. Yeah. 
In other Clinton news, uh, Bill Clinton met with someone on the tarmac at an airport this week, the current attorney general. <laughs> yeah, this what is, was that about? This is okay, not... so for folks that don't know, what happened? So Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch, the attorney general. The one the who nation's... has the power to decide if Hillary Clinton gets indicted, right? Yeah, the nation's top cop and, and the FBI and Justice Department are currently um, looking into Hillary Clinton's private email server. Uh, it's not known whether Hillary Clinton is a target of that investigation. Um, But there you go. The Justice Department and FBI are investigating Hillary Clinton's email server. And Bill Clinton gets on Loretta Lynch's airplane to just have a chat about golf and the grandkids, or so they say. How did their paths co- What was... How did they... You know, their planes were at the same airport. I think Bill Clinton was maybe golfing. Tarmics have not worked out for Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, politically. So, of course, when she ran in 2008, Clinton got into a lot of trouble talking about how when as first lady, she went to visit Bosnia and there were snipers on the tarmic and they had to land under fire. In fact, file footage came out of her like being presented with bouquets from little kids (laughs) landing. And then when Bill Clinton was president, his first year in office, he got a ton of heat for Uh, allegedly holding off air traffic at all of LAX because he was getting a haircut on Air Force One uh, and just hours and hours of of mangled air traffic because because of that. The the thing that is just like really, really optically bad about this Mm -hmm. is it just opens the Clintons and the Justice Department up to criticism and calls for a, a special prosecutor. Yeah. All right, Domenico, Trump and Clinton were in Pennsylvania and Ohio this week. Two big battleground states. Let's talk battlegrounds and demographics. You and Asma have a really cool tool at NPR.org called the 270 Project. The What's 270 that? Project. I have to give all the credit here to Asma because she went really deep, uh, used a lot of research from the Brookings Institution, worked with them very closely on some of their demographic modeling and forecasting for 2016. Basically, what this tool does is it takes the turnout from 2012 and the margins of victory from 2012, and it lets you, the listener, the reader, be able to click through and increase or decrease those margins of victory or turnout. And what we did was we picked uh, 19 or 20 states in there, including New York, because Trump says he's going to win New York. And all you have to do is click over by uh, one percentage point, two percentage points, whatever you want to do, and you can see how the states change, how they move. Now, we should say that if Obama ran again based just on demography, he'd win by even more than he won in 2012. So that's your starting point. So Donald Trump has to win and win big by trying to turn out white men. And it's very hard to do. I mean, if you were to try to move these sliders around, you decrease the black vote, you uh, increase Latinos maybe slightly, you really ramp up the white vote and white margins, it's still hard to get Trump the victory, even though he could win Ohio and Pennsylvania fairly easily by just a couple ticks of the uh, of increasing mm. white turnout. I am, I, go oh, ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, this tool is pretty fun. It's cool. Like, <laughs> it's I, addictive. I don't like numbers that much, but I spent a good 10 minutes today moving those dials. Awesome. It's fun. It's fun. And pretty. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole idea here is like dem- demographics are the thing that maybe most tells us how people are going to vote. The country's changed so rapidly over the last decade or two. It's become so much more non-white. This is projected to be the lowest white share of the electorate in history. Uh, And to be able to see a candidate like Donald Trump, who has said things that has offended a lot of non-whites, to find out if he has a path, it's it's a fun, neat kind of thing to be able to try to do. If you guys want to see more of the 270 Project, check out the NPR Politics page on Facebook.
We've got to take one more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to learnvest.com slash nprpolitics. All right, time for some mail. Don't forget to email us your questions or your feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. And maybe, if you want to, you can record your question on your phone and send that to us here. Again, that's nprpolitics at npr.org. Bonus points if you make the recording fun. And P.S., we listen to these and really enjoy them. If we don't get them here on the podcast, they're still great. All right, first up. Hey, guys. My name is Anthony from Las Vegas. Hey, Anthony. The similarity between Brexit voters for the Leave camp and Trump supporters here at home got me wondering. When Margaret Thatcher was selected as her party's prime minister, did she experience the same type of vitriol that Hillary Clinton is seeing today? Thanks, guys. And I really enjoy the podcast. He has a good read. Yeah. Nice Mm -hmm. voice. Yeah. Good timber. Um, Unlike me. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was negative three when Margaret Thatcher was doing her thing. I can't take this question. Uh, great Meryl Streep movie on Margaret Thatcher's life, I would recommend, called The Iron Lady. But but yeah, uh, Margaret Thatcher was basically the first female head of state in a Western democracy. Uh, she came into power in the head early- Head of government. That's right. We actually got an NPR <laughs> email about this today with all the Brexit because the head of state- is a woman and already was, and that's Queen Elizabeth, but head of government, prime minister, running the government. It's hard for us here because in America, the president is both head yes. of state because and head of government. Because we decided we did we not want those. Because we don't have a, <laughs> we don't have royal a monarchy. family. Yes. Yeah, we, that's, that, that was our Brexit. <laughs> that was kind of our revolutionary. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Brexit. We did it first. Americit? No. So, uh, <laughs> Scott, what was your point? Uh, short answer was, well, she got a good bit of that. Yeah, um, I, I was looking this up and, and one website, I think it was New York Magazine, around the time that Margaret Thatcher died, collected like 10 of the most sexist quotes that, that people publicly said about Margaret Thatcher when she was, especially earlier in her tenure, when it was still kind of a, a novelty to, ha- to have a woman running a party and running a government. People called her the B word. People called her shrill. People said she looked like a man. So a lot of things like that came. Words away. we still hear today about women yeah, in politics. Yeah, I've and, heard that before. And, and frankly, the late 1970s when she had to start campaigning was a very different time for women. And for her to be able to get into office at that point in her career, uh, you know, even if you look at the early 90s when Hillary Clinton first came into the White House as first lady and her comment about how she could have stayed home and baked cookies because she decided to have a career, that was a huge controversy against her rather than something that people said, yeah, women should have careers. Margaret Thatcher, because she was this trailblazing woman, was under a lot of pressure and put on herself also to be tough. And there's this quote in this article from uh, a woman who got some advice from Margaret Thatcher. And the advice was a little woman to woman counsel. And here's the quote. Never trousers, my dear. They rob a woman of her authority. Wow. Now, of course, Hillary Clinton is not taking that advice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next question from Down Under. G'day. My name is Scott from Brisbane, Australia. We just keep giving these 
Australians. Here in Australia. There are people too. We have a federal election coming up on the 2nd of July. And putting the politics of it aside. All right, so Scott here goes on to explain that a big part of Election Day in Australia is something known as a... <laughs> it's something known as a sausage sizzle. I don't write the script. I read it. They've got mandatory um, voting and sausage sizzles. So there's even a website dedicated to helping Australians find them on Election Day. A sausage sizzle is literally a beef sausage grilled on a gas barbecue and served on bread with or without cooked onion, a choice of tomato sauce, barbecue sauce, or mustard. This is a hot dog. That's a hot dog. Well, sausage. They're usually part of a fundraising campaign, costing only a dollar or two, and are almost universal at polling booths across the country. My question to you is, are there any election day, or even primary or caucus day, traditions in the USA like we have here? Our tradition is allegations of voter fraud every No, election. I mean, they like their, bar- their Barbies, I guess. But we have the uh, Iowa State Fair, and we deep fry things. That's for sure. Not on, not on election day. Yeah, but... Like, but like election day, what is a yeah. galvanizing tradition? Stickers? Oh, yeah, yeah, stickers. Sam, we do I don't have think... stickers, and everybody posts them on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Now, yeah. And the stickers say, I voted, and they have an American flag. Yeah, and they're really cool. They are. All right, so we have another question just for you guys, Tam and Scott, from Lauren in Pennsylvania. My question is for the Star Wars fans in the room. Yeah. Is Rey <laughs> Luke's daughter? Ooh. And how does she not know her own last name? I don't think we don't know that she doesn't know. I think we just don't know what it is. You know, like an orphan girl, or not really an orphan, but she was abandoned at a young age. She was just scavenging in a desert. This Thanks is the main for listening. Character. That's the NPR <laughs> Politics Podcast. Now, who is Rey? She's the main character in the newest movie that came out. She is just the awesomest awesomest. I think she is related to a main Star Wars character, but I do not think it's Luke. Only time will tell. (laughs) Thank you for your service. All right, last question from across the pond. Hi, guys. This is Henry from London, and special hello to Asma, because I know you love the accent. Oh, yes. She is married, son. Do you think that given the huge popularity of left-wing movements like Bernie in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, uh, among young people, points to a big swing to the left, both sides of the Atlantic, in about 20 years? Or do you think maybe it's just generally we're going towards a further right set of politics? Anyway, thank you. I love the show. So I think we got to start out with where people like Bernie and Corbyn stand right now. Bernie lost. Corbyn is on the rocks post-Brexit. He might lose his job. Um, So there's not a wave there yet. They stand on the left. Yes. As far as in 20 years, he's saying that these young progressives grow up and vote. uh, The word socialist has been a dirty word. And, you know, the thing is, when you look look at polls... It pulls worse than the word atheist for whether or not you'd vote for somebody, but not with younger people. And I think what the question kind of gets to is the idea of whether or not we're kind of moving away from a Cold War era where socialist equals communist and that there people are starting to have a different view of that word and the policies that are under that word as opposed to just taking that as a red flag, so to speak. And also the bigger question is like, will these young voters – become different types of voters as they age, or do they stay as progressive or left-wing as they are now? Well, there is something that would say that if you vote Democratic a few times, You're then you be will a stay a Democrat. Yeah, or if you vote a better... Republican a few times, you will stay a okay. Republican. Yeah, almost nothing is a better indicator than how you have voted to tell us how you will vote. All right, that's the mail, which means it's time for Can't Let It Go. When we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise— I'm going to go first uh, because mine is not super silly. 
or maybe right. Italy will determine. Um, so in my California vacation, I was in L.A. and wine country and SF, and I made some time and to— And where? Go- San Francisco. San Francisco. Oh, is that what they call it? The so city. The, the cool kids say SF? I don't know. All right. I don't know. <laughs> cool. Winnico calls it Frisco. Yes. That is not what the cool kids call it. No, that's not what I call it. That's what apparently I was Scott implying, does. I was implying you weren't cool. Right. It, was a, it was a dig. Sam. Okay. Just messing with you. You, <laughs> know. you forgot what it was like being on vacation. You know? Anyways, a good friend of mine was actually going to march in the Pride Parade, which happened to be this past Sunday. But um, I'm reading up on it, and it turns out that the Grand Marshal of this parade was going to be Black Lives Matter. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But Black Lives Matter has actually pulled out of the parade. Um, After Orlando and the shooting there at Pulse Nightclub, the city of San Francisco beefed up security, beefed up police presence, and Black Lives Matter said, we can't accept that because we don't believe in that much heavy policing. Hmm. And the whole thing just felt strange. Like, I get what they're saying, but at some point, do they have to be a group that cooperates a bit more with all the players in government in a city? Like, what does this get them? Well, and also, which part of Black Lives Matter was going to be the Grand Marshal of the parade? I mean, it's like it is a diffuse yes. group. And there's no national leader. So I don't know if this came from just the folks in the Bay Area or somewhere else. But the whole thing just felt like mission purity uh, might have taken precedence over some good old cooperation. Well, that kind of feels like a good example of the the limiting points of when we have conversations about police, when we have conversations about on the international level, like how do we fight terrorism? How do we do with security? Because it seems like Black Lives Matter highlighted like the most extreme examples of when it's when it's not the right balance. But there's situations like a massive shooting just happened. There are terror threats somewhere like that is a situation where I think you want a beefed up police presence. Right. And I feel like most people kind of live in that that in between world. of Exactly. Those two. It's, it's also, you know, what can you get accomplished politically? I mean, purity is a really hard thing to maintain without a majority and majorities don't usually come from pure positions. And, you know, uh, our colleague Asma Khalid uh, did a piece about young black activists who said that they don't think they want to vote in this election. You know, unfortunately, without a political agenda, like a clear legislative agenda that you want or a clear way to go and affect change through voting, it makes it very difficult to get things done. And I'm not even coming down on like one side or the other. I just felt like what's the right balance for these outside activist groups? I don't know. That's my question. More to come. Yes. Um, Who's next? Tam. The three amigos (laughs) got together. In Canada, the three amigos being... Uh, and we're not talking about Steve Martin, Martin Short, and uh, I don't know the third amigo. Scott Stop Left. Oh, was but it Chevy Chase? Chevy, Chevy Chase. Chase. Now, actually, this is actually why they are now dubbed the three amigos, because that was in the 90s and people had seen um, them and um, then it um, became like a thing. I believe that was the 80s. And there was, was the three the amigos 80s? before that even. The three amigos yeah. has been a thing that's existed in multiple films but, and books, but right? But these three amigos are Mexican <laughs> President Enrique Peña Nieto, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and one President Barack Obama. Why were the three of them hanging out together this week? Well, they were in Ottawa for the North American Leaders Summit. It's a collection oh. of good-looking men. And that's what the internet thinks, because they are they have been memed yeah. to no end. Who is the star of this trio? Oh, Trudeau and his hair. Yeah. Mostly and it was just also in Canada. It was in Canada. So. Yeah. I saw some other gifts and vines and tweets comparing them to Destiny's Child. I think yes. Scott saw those, too. <laughs> I saw those, well. There was 
there was like gifts of them walking all down kind of like in a line. There were like yeah. still shots of that. It was. It felt had a little bit of an entourage feel, yes. but I could see it also being like a Destiny's if Child. If the Destiny's Child, who was the Beyonce? I think Trudeau was I Beyonce. I think Trudeau because he can dance. I feel like Obama has legacy Beyonce uh, clout. In that in that mix up though, is he I like, mean, of the is three he like of them, the, he's the uh, biggest. He like... Which one of those three is going to have a solo career? I feel like a Barack Obama. <laughs> you know, like is he like the is he like the Aretha to their Beyonce now though? Like because he's like the old man, the, of the, the elder statesman. Yeah, he's like the T. Bosch from TLC. No. <laughs> All right, who's next? Who else has a thing they can't let go? Um, I want to talk about uh, Thomas Whitmore. Who is that? Yeah. Let me tell you. You know, uh, I think um, I've kind of carved out a spot as like a fan of like nerdy sci-fi pop culture in, the, in this podcast. No, that's Tam. Uh, there's a couple of you. Of you. you <laughs> Sounds people. like Domenico does not include himself. Okay. I, I, I don't. Well, I am firmly in that camp. Yeah. Independence Day, the sequel, came out last week. Was and it, it is horrific. Okay. It is just like an atrocious movie. Well, Will, Smith, awful. Did Will they, Smith is in did it. Did they build the White House back up? Unclear, because I didn't oh. go see it. Um, well, how do you know it's There's bad? still time. I read all the reviews. I watched the previews. <laughs> I, I deeply researched my movies. Okay. So it was bad, but it got me thinking about the original Independence Day, which was amazing. It is it like the so first good. event movie I can remember where like the theater was packed. I like bought tickets days ahead of time. Well, it was, and like, they a thing. opened it early. Like they, It was like the extended weekend. But it was yeah. just such a good movie, and I feel like decades later, like the most enduring part of it is this one moment where Bill Pullman, playing President Thomas Whitmore, gets up. They're about to go attack the aliens, and he gets up and he gives this inspirational speech that is like the best presidential speech in a movie ever. And it's been kind of like a glum year. There hasn't been much inspiration in this race. So I think we should just take a listen to Thomas Whitmore giving that Independence Day speech. It's July 4th, and, and get ourselves psyched about America again. <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. And should we win the day? Oh, wow. The 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. What? This is great. But as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without, without a fight. fight. We're going to live on. We're going to live on. <laughs> wow. Okay. We're going to survive. No. But why is it July? Well, Don't okay. step on it. Celebrate. <laughs> Our Independence Day. And then they go fight the aliens, and it's great. And he fights them, right? He fights the aliens because he is a Gulf War hero, and he gets in the plane. Golf or golf? Gulf War. <laughs> this is this is that's the soundtrack that's gonna play as Scott comes outside to like grill on Dominico the is such barbecue. A hater. You, you just, shut, haters, down, you just like, shut down you know, the happiness. And I will declare my kids, 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 kids. kids. I think we have to make America great again, guys. Scott, I think that was great. We have to Thank make you. Make, Thank in, you, Sam. make Independence Day great. You're again. not wrong, Domenico. <laughs> play that to pump myself up sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah. That's your hype music. <laughs> That's cool. Like when you're getting ready for the big game. Minus the all things considered. I just got Star Wars right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Everyone will have your back on uh, Twitter and an email. Domenico, what can you not let go? So because this has been a campaign of darkness and uh, not a lot of (laughs) light. Not everyone would say that. uh, There's not been a lot of light in this campaign. I mean, you have two candidates who are the least liked in presidential history. um, And there's just been... It, you know, it's been a campaign that is it's uh it's not been easy to cover and not been easy to uh to probably digest for a lot of people. But we did get a little bit of light from a valedictorian speech from eighth grader Jack Aiello, and he has this eight minute graduation speech where he does impressions of each of the candidates, and he's pretty darn good at it. Uh, let's take a listen to some of that. And let me just tell you that Thomas has been such a great school. I mean, quite frankly, it's been fantastic. 
<laughs> so he was he's great there with his Trump. He did a little bit of, of Bernie Sanders too, which I think was probably his best that got the crowd rolling. Why should students have to pay for the own cinnamon rolls? Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's good. What That's we good. need is a cinnamon roll revolution. <laughs> yep, he did it. Yeah, his so, Hillary was even good. I, I'd like to start out by thanking the great hardworking teachers of Thomas Middle School. Is that Hillary? <laughs> she does a lot of thank yous all the time. Yeah. And teachers. Yeah. And he wound up on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon as mini Trump, Trump's running mate. We make quite a team. Look at us. We have the same voice. We have the same hair. And we have the same size hands. Yeah. Oh, wow. They're big, beautiful hands, aren't they? We also have the same brain. We think exactly alike. In fact, we even finish each other's walls. He doesn't even sound nervous. No, he's, he's performing. He's a pro. He's a pro. So like 10, 15 years from now, we're going to see this kid on SNL or he, he'll let's come hope, back. Let's hope that's what happens and it doesn't turn into something where like this was the peak, you know? Oh, oh wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. just took happiness um, and made it sad. I know. That's a wrap. Wow. That's a... Maybe we could cut that. Oh. <laughs> Methinks. I just think of like Justin Bieber. He's like Stop. not cool Stop now it now. Either. Stop. That's this young child <laughs> has hopes and dreams. Are we there? That's a wrap. As always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. We mentioned Stephen Keep's interview with the president. You can check that out online. And also in your feed on Friday, we'll have a special documentary from Steve and Morning Edition examining all the ways the country has changed in the eight years Barack Obama has been president. Uh, it's called Obama's Years. I think you'll like it. It's some good holiday weekend listening for you all. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Happy Independence Day, and thank you all for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.